Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to get a chat about Vasco da Gama, a famous Portuguese explorer who was the first person in history to sail from Europe to Asia around the African continent. And this achievement was, to put it mildly, a very bloody big deal indeed. As we'll talk about in the episode, it had a huge number of consequences on on many different scales. Um, It helped to establish Portugal as a major maritime power. It led to their monopoly on the European spice trade. It made the Portuguese Empire one of the most powerful realms on the planet in the 16th century. But The consequences of his voyage go a lot further than that because da Gama connected the world in an altogether unprecedented way. Prior to this, the major trade routes between uh, between Europe and Asia, they're all land-based. Wealth would flow back and forth across the Silk Road. But da Gama, he came along and brought about a new age of global interconnectedness as he joined Europe and Asia by sea, causing humanity, humanity to make a massive step along the path towards an increasingly globalised world. And the global consequences of this voyage were enormous, not just in the years that followed it, but in the decades and centuries afterwards as well. It was a key factor in the beginning of increased European expansion and colonisation around the world. The world was forever made a smaller place, thanks to Vasco da Gama, as we'll discuss, and the consequences of his first voyage have helped to shape the world into what it is today. De Gamma's personal story is an interesting one as well. Uh, he, he's far from a hero. Uh, his legacy is deeply mixed, with his monumental achievements being uh, rather heavily compromised by the standards of some of his behaviour, and, and not even in a, oh, well, it was okay that back then kind of way. No, this bloke was a dead-set maniac at various points, as you'll see. But before we begin, um, thanks go out to alert listeners Enrico Orsi, Sarah Perestrello, Mariana Rodriguez, Anna Isabella Texera, who all got in touch, suggesting either... Vasco da Gama uh, specifically, or or just a bit of Portuguese uh, Portuguese history. And look, welcome into any other Portuguese listeners that are tuning in as well. While we're at it, it's great to have you along. And also, very quickly, um, I also want to uh, I want to offer a very warm welcome to any listeners who are joining the podcast for the first time after discovering it as part of the ongoing broadcast of Hidden Cup Five. For those of you who don't know, um, you might be surprised to learn this. Actually, competitive Age of Empires Two is alive and well. This game from decades ago is still going very strong. And I've been fortunate enough to be featured on a few broadcasts here and there. Um, and right now, as this episode is coming out, if you uh, if you go over to twitch.tv slash t90official, that's t90official, uh, you might spot me on Tristan's broadcast of Hidden Cup. Uh, and if you're listening to this, you know, weeks or months later, you'll be able to find it on his uh, find me on his YouTube uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Hidden Cup is a it's, it's a fantastic tournament. Um, it uh, it involves players playing under secret identities. Essentially, they hide their true identities while playing in the tournament using the names instead of actual historical figures. Actual historical figures such as Vasco da Gama. Yes, indeed, King Stephen as well from last week. Oh, yes, it's it's all very calculated. I, I've got to get those clicks. Uh, in fact, uh, there, there's a whole list of episodes specifically about figures that you might recognise from the Age of Empires 2 campaigns. Uh, head over to halfhousehistory.net. You'll find a, uh, a full list that I've prepared there for you if you want to listen to uh, some of your, your favourite characters uh, from Age of Empires 2. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get into today's episode, talk about one of history's most important and impactful explorers. Here we go 
with the tale of Vasco da Gama. Let's get into it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around 1460, the approximate year of the birth of Vasco da Gama. He was uh, he was born in the small seaside town of Sinesh in uh, in Portugal, halfway between Lisbon and the southwest tip of the country. And he was the born he was born as the third son of Estevão da Gama and uh, his wife Isabel Sodre. Uh, Estevão was a governor of, uh, of Sinesh after having had a uh, quite a successful military career when he was younger. He was a member of the illustrious Order of Santiago, while uh, Isabel uh, came from a, a wealthy and some, somewhat influential family herself. So uh, de Gama's upbringing was, uh, you know, one would assume a, a reasonably positive one, being born into modest privilege like this. Although, as is so often the case with figures like de Gama, I feel like I've said this phrase a thousand times on the show, we don't know too much about his early life, and as I've explained in a previous episode at some point, I don't know which one, get across it, I guess, um, the reason we often don't know much about the early early lives of people like da Gama is that it's only after they do something really notable that people start paying attention to them. If you've got a young prince who grows up to be a mighty king, people are paying attention to him as soon as he's born, but no one in 1460 was particularly interested in the third son of a local town governor. Anyway, what details we do have about this bloke in his younger years, uh, I can tell you he likely received a decent education, probably studying both mathematics and navigation, because this was all the rage in Portugal at the time. It was a growing maritime power. Um, Portuguese seafaring expeditions were venturing further and further south along the African coastline uh, in search of wealth and riches, principally gold, but they were also after something else, unfortunately, slaves and uh, there was a ready supply of them along the, uh, the West African coastline, uh, which the Portuguese took full advantage of. Uh, but this ongoing focus on maritime affairs uh, was leading to the creation of a, of a new generation of sailors. And uh, da Gama's education was doubtless influenced by the Portuguese focusing on their naval expansion, teaching navigational skills to, uh, to young men. And once he'd grown up a bit, once he was around 20 or so, da Gama followed in his father's footsteps in joining the Order of Santiago, and this proved to be a good move, because the bloke in charge of the Order at that stage, around 1840, was Prince John, or Prince João in, uh, in Portuguese, and he was the heir to the Portuguese throne. And it wasn't long before he ascended to it either. Uh, he was crowned as King John II in 1481, and he would go on to be a very important monarch, uh, not just in Portuguese history, but more importantly for our story, in the story of Vasco, uh, Vasco da Gama, as, uh, as you'll see. After becoming king, uh, John maintained his very strong interest in the Order of Santiago, which was an excellent result for its members, like da Gama and his old man. Uh, they were in a terrific position with the patronage of the king. Uh, and in the coming years, da Gama would greatly benefit from not just his position within the order, but an ongoing, uh, very positive relationship uh, with King John himself. But let's zoom out a second here um, and uh, and talk about the position that Portugal was in in the 1480s more broadly when King John II came to power to better understand what came next. Because John made some important changes to his kingdom. He took control of uh, a somewhat fractured realm, to be honest. There were powerful barons calling a lot of the shots and undermining the power of the king when he uh, when he came to the throne. And this was due to all sorts of, uh, of different factors, but one of the most, if not the most important factor was very simple. It was just money. The Portuguese royal coffers were a little emptier than John would have liked uh, when he came to power. And so after taking control of the kingdom, he began to make uh, a couple of changes around the place. And the most important of his reforms was finding ways for the crown to make money independently of the Portuguese nobility and thereby reassert royal power over them with a, with a newly restocked treasury. And how did he do this? How did he get all cashed up again? 
by wind and wave, by taking to the seas and continuing to push Portugal towards becoming a major maritime power. John's plan was a very ambitious one. Uh, Portugal was not in a good position, geographically speaking, to take advantage of Europeans' most lucrative trade routes, the Silk Road and the Spice Trade that went overland to the east through to Asia. And the Mediterranean was a very hotly contested region, commercially commercially speaking. Uh, When it came to the riches of the Spice Trade, Portugal was about as far away from the thicker things as it was possible to be, really. Uh, and John wanted to change that and determined it was determined that Portugal should instead make the most of its location as uh, at the far west of Europe to chart new courses and forge new trade routes to Asia, not overland as was the custom, but instead by sea around the southern tip of the African continent. Now, this was, as I say, a very ambitious plan because no one had ever sailed such a route before. European explorers weren't even sure it was possible to sail around Africa. They didn't know what the eastern coast of the continent even looked like. But John was determined. And throughout the 1480s, he put together a long-term plan to mount an expedition around Africa through to Asia and circumvent the land-based spice trade routes altogether. He sent out operatives and spies uh, along the Silk Road to to travel along and investigate uh, the existing trade routes, and also sent captains out uh, along the west coast of Africa by sea to sail as far south as they could and attempt to find a way around the continent, which they did. In the year 1488, the, uh, the Portuguese captain Bartholomew Diaz, he came back from a voyage to the southern tip of Africa and reported to King John that it was indeed possible to sail all the way around the southern tip of Africa and into the Indian Ocean. So, it was all coming together for John here. He had information about the overland routes, he had information about how to establish the maritime routes that he wanted to set up. And as we move into the 1490s, he is more resolved than ever to send explorers around Africa and over to Asia that way. And who did he choose to lead the first expedition he sent off to establish this new trade route? None other than, of course, Vasco da Gama. Da Gama had been an enthusiastic and loyal servant of the king, enjoying his privileged position in the Order of Santiago throughout the 1490s. Um, He was sent off on behalf of King John to attack and capture French ships and, and gain riches and plunder and glory in doing so. And by all accounts, he was very good at this. Da Gama was a talented and an able sea captain, and so John decided to task him with leading a fleet of ships along this unknown sea route to the south to reach India and bring home cargo holds full to bursting with succulent spices. Now, King John died uh, before this could take place in in 1495, uh, but his cousin and successor, King Manuel I, he continued John's plans and funded da Gama's proposed journey all the same. So it went ahead just as John had uh, had written it up. And so on the 8th of July, 1497, with everything in readiness, Vasco da Gama set off as the commander of a fleet of four ships. The Sao Gabriel, the Sao Rafael, the Sao Miguel, and the, uh, well, probably the Sao something. We actually don't know what the four ships' uh, name was. It's been it's been lost to history. Oops. Anyway, these four ships, they were crewed with 170 men in total, and the journey in front of them was going to be an extremely long one, I can tell you. Uh, to sail from Portugal around Africa and to India and then back again is roughly the distance uh, that you would travel if you if you went exactly around the circumference of the Earth. So... A very bloody long way here. No one had ever made uh, a single journey of this length uh, before. A very, again, a very ambitious and also a very dangerous undertaking. Anyway, 
They set off, as I say, they sailed south from Portugal along the coast of northwest Africa, which was obviously well charted and explored by Portuguese sailors at this stage. Uh, so they're in relatively uh, familiar waters here. But then, after reaching uh, the, the area that is today Guinea and Sierra Leone, rather than continue along the African coastline, rather than following the coast of the Gulf of Guinea, da Gama decided instead to take to the open ocean. Now, this took months. They didn't arrive in southern Africa until November. Um, and further, this open ocean journey was, at that point, the longest one ever taken out of sight of land by Europeans. Now, this doesn't sound like much to us today. These days, you know, we're, we're quite happy to hurtle through the air in a flying cigar at hundreds of kilometres an hour when we, want to, when we want to get somewhere quickly. But back then, the idea of sailing out of the sight of land was... Uh, this was a colossal step for people to take. Back then, just think of what this represented. Three months without the sight of land, without the sight of something that they, their parents, their grandparents, and every single other ancestor they had ever had, had seen every single day of their lives. People just didn't sail out of the sight of land. There were great cross-oceanic uh, migrations like the Polynesian migrations, of course, that took place. But these things were very, very rare. It was not a normal thing back then for people to find themselves uh, outside of eyeshot of land. The best analogy I can give you here to, to this step that da Gama took is, is, honestly, this sounds ridiculous, but this, I think, gets us pretty close to, to what da Gama did here. It is like astronauts going into space. Because think about it. These sailors, they were venturing into the unknown, a hostile unforgiving and vastly remote location that would kill them in a heartbeat if they made the slightest mistake. So you can imagine the relief uh, that these these sailors must have felt when, when they sighted land uh, once again after months on the open ocean. It honestly would have been like astronauts touching back down to Earth. Anyway, back inside of land, they ended up scuttling one of their ships, the uh, the one with the unknown name. I'm not sure why they did. Perhaps they didn't have the resources to keep it sailing. I don't know. In any case, uh, by December, uh, the fleet of three ships now had rounded the Cape of Good Hope and the southern tip of Africa, and they uh, began to make their way into the Indian Ocean. Now, Europeans had never sailed these waters before. They were completely unknown to da Gama and his crew. And as they carefully made their way up the eastern coast, stopping in where they, where they could to replenish their supplies and take on water, they eventually arrived at the island of Mozambique. Now, the island of Mozambique, it's a tiny little island. It's almost halfway between the southern tip of Africa and the Horn of Africa in modern-day Somalia. And this island is what gives the enormous country of Mozambique its name. It's the, the huge country that spans much of the uh, of the southeast coast of Africa is named after this one tiny island. And back then, uh, when Dagama visited it, it was a sultanate. It had a sultan in charge of things. And Dagama landed on the island. He had to actually pretend to be a Muslim uh, so as to ingratiate himself with the sultan who... Uh, Still didn't seem to think all that much of Dagama, to be honest, uh, especially as Dagama didn't have much in the way of gifts for him. In fact, after a couple of weeks, uh, Dagama and the Portuguese, they, they wore out their welcome in Mozambique and they were chased off the island altogether. They had to flee at top speed on, uh, on their ships, uh, although they did send a, a barra barrage or two back from the cannons for good measure as, uh, as they turned tail and, uh, and fled from uh, the island of Mozambique. Anyway, between... Mozambique and Mombasa, which is found in modern-day Kenya. Dagama and his fleet, they engaged in some uh, light piracy. They looted some local merchant ships. And after a brief, a brief stop in Mombasa, they continued on to Malindi, which is still in modern-day Kenya. And after arriving in Malindi in April 1498, Dagama hired a ship's pilot who was confident that he could get the fleet across the ocean to India 
although the identity of this pilot sadly has been lost to history because his role in uh, in this voyage was a very very important one because whoever he was he made good on the promise uh, that he had uh, that he had put forth that he, that he would be able to get the uh, the fleet across the indian ocean to india Using the monsoon winds, this bloke uh, successfully steered da Gama's fleet across the open ocean once again and landed near the Indian coastal city of Calicut, known today as Kozikode, on the 20th of May, 1498, almost a year after the expedition had left Lisbon. And in doing this, da Gama had completed his voyage. He'd done it. He had successfully sailed from Europe to Asia, from Portugal to India, and was well on his way not only to fulfilling King John II's dreams of a maritime trade network with the East, but also to opening up a newly globalised world of international naval trade. Da Gama met with the ruler of Calicut, the Zamoran, or the Samuthiri, um, who was curious to know what a seafaring European was doing so very far from home. Now, Da Gama was very honest with the Zamoran, uh, he said that he was looking for spices, and so rolled out the great many gifts that he brought specifically for the Zamoran, so to make sure, so as to make sure that the spice would flow. The Zamoran, however, um, he was thoroughly unimpressed with the gifts. Uh, there were some nice things in there with what the Portuguese had brought: some rich cloth, some fine hats, some sugar, some honey, other bits and pieces. But notably absent amongst all the gifts that the Portuguese plonked down in front of the ruler of Calicut was gold. Da Gama didn't offer the Zamoran any gold at all, and uh, the Zamoran didn't seem to think too much of this. He wasn't a big fan and made Da Gama cough up. Uh, Muslim traders were whispering in the Zamoran's ear, advising him not to do business with Da Gama. And so the Zamoran charged Da Gama hefty taxes on all of the spice transactions that he undertook. And that was what finally made Da Gama get his gold out as he followed his king's orders and loaded his ships up with spices of all kinds. And Da Gama, he wasn't too happy about being fleeced by the Zamoran like this. And so uh, by way of retribution, he decided to kidnap a few locals before he set sail for the return journey to Portugal, just a good measure as you... As you do. I don't know. Anyway, Da Gama and his fleet, they left Calicut on the 29th of August, 1498, the holds of their ships groaning under the uh, under the weight of spices they'd brought aboard. But this time, he didn't have an expert pilot to get him back across the Indian Ocean and back to the coast of Africa. Now, as I mentioned before, sailing out of the sight of land into the open ocean was a hugely dangerous thing to do, a terrifying thing to do. And the Portuguese didn't have the navigational techniques of, for instance, the Polynesians, as I mentioned before, whose great migration across the Pacific was aided with their mastery of navigating by wind and wave and star. Da Gama wasn't quite flying blind here, but it's important to remember that leaving land behind and sailing into the open ocean was quite a thing to do for the Portuguese at this stage, which made his decision to do it without an expert, all the more foolish. It had taken less than a month for their former expert pilot to get them from Africa to India, while the return voyage from India to Africa took over four months. It wasn't until the 2nd of January 1499 that Da Gama spotted land again near the city of Mogadishu in today's Somalia, and moreover, the return crossing of the Indian Ocean had been an unmitigated disaster for the Portuguese. Half the crew had died, the other half had scurvy, we're a long way away from James Lind and his cure, episode 62, get across it, and they're also down to two ships, 
there weren't enough crew remaining to sail the three that were that were still afloat. And so the Sao Rafael, it, its cargo was redistributed into the other two ships and it was scuttled as well. Now, things did go a fair bit better for the Portuguese after they uh, began to sail along the the African coast instead of just out in the open ocean. Um, also because they had this reduced fleet size, they had enough men to, to crew the, the two ships that remained. And uh, the fleet, I get fleet, I suppose, two ships, still a fleet, whatever. Anyway, uh, it reached the uh, the Cape of Good Hope in uh, in mid to late March and continued now up the much more familiar western coast of Africa towards Portugal. And while the two ships uh, arrived safely back in Portugal in July, da Gama did not. Sadly, his brother Paulo, who had uh, come along on the expedition, he had fallen ill. And so da Gama had disembarked on Santiago Island off of Cape Verde to help him recover. Sadly, though, Paolo did not make it. He died, and after burying and mourning his brother, da Gama only finally arrived back in Portugal uh, a month or so after his ships in late August 1499. However, I'll tell you this. Da Gama did very, very bloody well for himself out of this uh, successful voyage to India and back. He was hailed as a hero upon his return to Portugal, showered in money. He was given his hometown of Sinesh as a fief and granted the truly ridiculous title of... Admiral of the Seas of Arabia, Persia, India, and all the Orient. Even with the loss of two ships and a huge number of crew, the expedition was widely considered to be a massive success in Portugal, for a reason I'm sure you can probably guess. It made the Portuguese a lot of money. The spices that da Gama had brought back sold for something like 50 times as much as as the cost of the expedition in the first place. And more broadly than this, right, let's, let's talk about some of the wider consequences of this voyage, some of the much more important consequences in the broad, uh, broad sweep of history. Da Gama's expedition had an enormous impact on the path that uh, human civilization took because not only was it the longest single sea voyage ever made at the time, many historians consider it to be a watershed moment in world history. By opening up a sea trade route between Europe and Asia, da Gama's voyage marked the beginning of a new era of human civilization. That may sound like an overstatement, but just think of it this way. After da Gama connected these continents in this way, it brought about a, a period that is still going on today, a period of globalized trade and exchange, not just of goods and money, but of societies and cultures. We talk about the world becoming increasingly globalised today in the 21st century with the advent of communications technologies like the internet, and I would argue that da Gama's voyage was just as significant back then. The internet today connects us in all new revolutionary ways, but 500 years ago, the world was connected in an all-new revolutionary way as slow, lumbering land-based trade routes were steadily obsoleted by the direct efficiency of maritime trade instead. Continents that had been separated by vast distances were wrenched closer together than ever before by da Gama's voyage, which, which proved that you could take to the seas and transport lucrative cargoes across the waves rather than hauling them along routes like the Silk Road. But of course, along with this newly shrunken world came imperialism and all of the horrific exploitation, mistreatment and murder that, uh, that was part and parcel of colonisation. 
Da Gama's voyage didn't just usher in an age of globalised commerce, but also the age of imperialism, for better or for worse. And because the Portuguese were the first to open the sea route to India, revolutionising the markets of Europe, they were the first, really, to reap the benefits of this new imperial age. The Portuguese Empire was more or less the most powerful realm on the face of the planet throughout most of the uh, the 16th century, thanks to their monopolies on spices like cinnamon and pepper that went unchallenged for a very long time. Eventually, of course, the, the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, the English, they would all establish their own maritime empires and contest Portugal on the waves. But to begin with, it was Portugal that enjoyed a near total supremacy on water thanks to, again, da Gama's trailblazing voyage. The Portuguese sent another fleet to Calicut in 1500 with the explicit aim of setting up a trade agreement with the Zamorin over there and also building a fattoria in order to support Portuguese trade. Uh, fattorias or factories were uh, were like enormous fortified trading posts with the port- which the Portuguese scattered on the coastlines of their of their sea trade routes. Fattorias served as warehouses, as depots, as markets, even fortresses when the need arose. Uh, and they were a key aspect of Portugal's uh, naval uh, naval dominance. However, after arriving in Calicut, the, the second India Armada, as the Portuguese named their next expedition, it was unable to successfully establish a fattoria there. And in the end, uh, a full-scale armed conflict broke out between the forces of Portugal and of Calicut. The Portuguese responded to this hostility from Calicut uh, by attempting to more or less force them into submission through strength of arms when the second India Armada returned with the news that Calicut uh, had uh, that the expedition of Calicut had not gone well plans were made to send another enormous armed fleet to go and give that blasted Zamora a taste of Portuguese fury and in uh, in order to lead this expedition successfully Vasco da Gama was put in charge once again. He set off at the helm of 15 ships, crewed by 800 men, with orders to sail to Calicut once again, just as he'd done years ago, and force them into commercial submission. And uh, that is, well, to to cut a long story short, that is just what he uh, tried to do. I think we can say. I think we can say da Gama sailed his fleet south, just as he'd done, uh, just as he'd done previously, as I say. But he got there a lot faster this time. Uh, he left in February 1502 and arrived in India in October. So he managed to uh, knock a fair few, well, not just uh, not just seconds and minutes, but uh, days and weeks off the old PB there. But he did not conduct himself particularly well after arriving, I have to say. Um, at one point, most infamously, his fleet intercepted a ship full of Islamic pilgrims. And his treatment of this ship and the people aboard it was shameful. He looted the ship, which is, you know, just piracy. I guess we can overlook that. But he then locked its passengers in the hold and set the ship on fire, burning all of these poor pilgrims to death. Absolutely horrific behaviour from him. An enormous stain on his legacy. One of a great many stains that are about to join it. Uh, But I'll tell you this. Him burning this ship of pilgrims uh, to, to ashes, it certainly made the Zamoran sit up and pay attention because the story of da Gama's brutality, it reached the Zamoran's ears in, Cal- in, in Calicut. And uh, as a result, the Zamoran was a lot friendlier than he would have been otherwise when da Gama arrived to negotiate a trade agreement with him because he didn't want this barbaric European to arrive and set all of his ships on fire as well. However, 
Da Gama, he opened up the negotiations by demanding that the Zamoran, who was a Hindu, demanding that he expel all of the Muslims from Calicut. But obviously, and naturally, the Zamoran refused. After all, they had been there, they'd gotten there first. But here, Da Gama went completely off the rails. When, Zamorans, when the Zamoran's high priest visited Da Gama to continue the, the, the negotiations with him, Da Gama took this high priest prisoner, he cut off his lips and ears, and then, you, you, you're not going to believe this part, this is, un, this is just, this is so far beyond the pale, check this out, right? He then sewed a pair of dog's ears to the, to the head of the high priest, what the bloody hell is going on there, Da Gama, and sent him back to the Zamoran. And he didn't stop there. Furious that the Zamoran wouldn't give in to his demands, Da Gama ordered a two-day bombardment of Calicut, which was largely undefended and unfortified, and then went about capturing innocent sailors from bystanding vessels and cut off their ears and noses and even their hands. This barbaric treatment of the people of Calicut, it devastated the city. Trade ships began to avoid it, wanting to steer clear of this conflict, not get caught up in it. And as a result, the city spiralled towards ruin. Da Gama's fleet blasted all the ships that the, ships that the Zamorans sent against him, and then, with Calicut in ruins, he loaded up his holds with spices, he bolstered the defences of new nearby Portuguese Vittorias, and then just sailed off into the sunset in September 1503. However, I am pleased to say that his reception uh, when he arrived back in Portugal, even with holds filled to bursting with spices was not particularly favourable. His horrendous conduct, combined with the fact that he had actually completely failed to meet the objective set by King Manuel I, right? This meant that da Gama faced disgrace and ignominy when he returned, rather than riches and adulation. Because after all, his mission, yes, it had been to subjugate Calicut, sure, it had, it had been to force the city into submission, but what he had actually done was destroy it which was not what the Portuguese wanted at all. This was one of the most imp- important trading ports in southern India. It was one that the Portuguese already well and truly had a foothold in. And now da Gama had left it a smoking ruin. This cost the Portuguese dearly. Sure, there's all the nasty stuff he did about the hands being cut off and the, the sewing on of dog's ears, but I don't know how much the Portuguese actually cared about that. They were much more pissed with, uh, with da Gama for completely failing to set up the trading link that he'd been ordered to. And so... Rather than being hailed as a hero, as he had been after his first trip, da Gama was pushed to the margins of Portuguese royal affairs. Well and truly now in King Manuel's bad books, da Gama was essentially in political exile. He was unable to attend the royal court, he was unable to win back royal favour, and for the next, believe it or not, two decades, da Gama lived a life of obscurity and irrelevance. However, Things finally changed in 1518 when Ferdinand Magellan, the, another famous Portuguese explorer, he defected from the Portuguese to the Castilians, the Spanish, episode 106, get across it, and da Gama, sensing an opportunity, he too threatened to defect as well. And so, realising that the loss of another great navigator, another great explorer, explorer would be uh, too shameful for the Portuguese to bear, Manuel rehabilitated da Gama's image a little bit, granting him a noble title. He was made the, the Count of Vitiguera. He was the first Portuguese count in history to be of common birth. 
And things only improved further from there for de Gama. Uh, in 1521, King Manuel died uh, and his son, King John III, took the throne. For any fans of Civilization VI, this is the very same King Joao III who very fittingly in the game grants you that juicy bonus trade route. But uh, John III, he was a key figure, very important, uh, very important identity in the history of Portugal. He oversaw the colonization of Brazil. He strengthened Portugal's monopoly on, on the spice trade. He expanded the Portuguese empire to span over 4 million square kilometers by the time of his death. And da Gama, sensibly, was able to get in good with the new king. He did what he could to try to ingratiate himself with the, uh, the new young monarch and uh, returned to the royal court as an advisor in, into the 1520s, especially, of course, on maritime affairs, given his, uh, given his legacy, and rose through the ranks in the royal court very, very quickly indeed under John III and eventually was named as a viceroy. Uh, he secured a powerful naval appointment for his sons as well as uh, receiving the king's permission to head back over to India and set up a vice regency there and oversee Portuguese affairs and and manage the uh, the burgeoning naval and maritime trade. So uh, it was with two of his sons, uh, Estevão and Paulo, that in 1524 da Gama set out one final time across the seas to India to establish his new vice regency. He set sail in uh, April 1524 in command of 14 ships, a vast fleet once again, but uh, not all of them arrived in India this time after an underwater earthquake hit the fleet off the coast of India. Four or five of his ships were lost. But da Gama did manage to put a positive angle on the whole thing, quite an impressive uh, angle, to be honest, because as the ocean shook and as the water roiled, he called out to his men aboard the ships. He said, friends, rejoice and be happy. For even the sea trembles before us. Not a bad bit of spin, really. He probably would have done very well in marketing these days, particularly because the sea trembling before them cost them, you know, four or five ships and the lives of plenty of sailors. Anyway, after landing in India, where uh, where Portugal was making a concerted effort, of course, to expand its colonial and commercial interests, da Gama was intent upon establishing himself as the new viceroy. He planned to turf out all the old Portuguese commanders and rulers who had been previously sent and establish instead his own regime with the authority granted to him by John III. However, in what is going to be, I'm sorry to say, a very abrupt and very unsatisfying end to this story, da Gama never managed to get his vice-regency going because on the 24th of December 1424, not long after he had arrived in India, he died of malaria. And that was that. That is the end of the story of Vasco da Gama. That was the end of a monumentally impactful historical figure, someone who helped to bring about a revolutionary change in global history by linking Europe and Asia by sea. His legacy, of course, is deeply tainted by his conduct during his second voyage to India in particular, but the fact remains that Vasco da Gama's career marked a huge turning point in the history of human civilization. He was, of course, one of a great many very important explorers of the time, but his achievement in connecting two vastly separate continents by sea rather than by land would have ramifications that echoed throughout history for the centuries after it took place. Not only did da Gama completely change the economic and commercial landscape of Europe, Asia and the Middle East with the decline of the Silk Road, not only did he establish, help to establish Portugal as a preeminent maritime power, not only did he help to kick off an age of European exploration, colonization and dominance, da Gama and the voyage he undertook, this was 
one of the most profound steps that we as a civilization have taken on the path towards continued globalization, a, a path that we continue to tread to this day, again, in the interconnected world of, 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 the, of the 21st century internet. At the time, da Gama's voyage was the longest sea voyage ever undertaken, spanning the biggest distance a single expedition had ever sailed. But in completing this huge journey, da Gama actually made the world a smaller place, a more connected place than ever before. Not all of the consequences of this were good, of course, a great many weren't, but the fact remains that the world that we live in today, the interconnected, globalised world with its aeroplanes and its internet and its four-sliced toasters, it is a world shaped by Vasco da Gama, a world made irreversibly smaller thanks to his groundbreaking voyage. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Vasco da Gama. And personally, I'm hoping um, that whoever is playing as Vasco da Gama in Hidden Cup 5 uh, does very, very well uh, across the tournament. Uh, So more and more people are interested in his backstory. Gotta get those clicks, baby. You know I'm just a big seller. That's all I care about. But I do want to to thank, uh, in particular, all the listeners who have tuned in for the first time, people who have come over from T90 Stream. Welcome. By all means, welcome. And um, if you're an Age of Empires fan, old or new, I will remind you, I'll put the list back up uh, on the website, halfhousehistory.net, all sorts of details, episodes about um, your favourite characters from uh, the Age of Empires campaigns, all the way from William Wallace, an army marches on its stomach. The uh, We all learnt that during the uh, the tutorial campaign. But there's Joan of Arc, Saladin, Genghis Khan, Barbarossa, the classics from Age of Kings, from the Conquerors, there's Attila the Hun, Elsid, Montezuma, Hastings, Agincourt, uh, the Battle of Noyang, Battle of Tours. And all sorts of others as well, all the way through to some of the more recent uh, expansions, like the Dawn of the Dukes. There's Jadwiga, there's Jan Zizka, both of whom are also, um, uh, of course, competitors in, in Hidden Cup 5. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about, and you and you, if you've ever been interested in Age of Empires, if you remember playing it, maybe you got the discount of a cereal box when you were a kid back in the, uh, when was it, early, early 2000s? Uh, I recommend going and checking it out. It's a thriving community, a very positive community, and the game itself is fascinating. I'm terrible at it. Um, it requires... Uh, a lot of very quick thinking and uh, and, and efficient decision-making, uh, which uh, is not my forte. I prefer to stick to slower strategy games like Civilization VI. But uh, if, you, if you're at all interested uh, in Age of Empires 2, if you want a bit of a, a trip down memory lane, a great place to start uh, is T90's um, YouTube channel. Uh, otherwise, there are other fantastic content creators, comp- uh, competitive players like Hera and The Viper. Um, there is uh, Spirit of Law, who has a fantastic YouTube channel full of all sorts of information about the game and its history and even the history represented in the game. So, so much content for you to get across if you want to get into the world, do a deep dive in the world of Age of Empires 2. And I want to thank once again all the people who have, uh, who have come and, and given the show a chance after seeing me uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Hidden Cup broadcast. But I also want to thank all of the old listeners as well, uh, tuning back in. It's great to have your company once again. Thank you for, uh, for being part of the success of uh, the ongoing success of Half-Assed History. And uh, I hope to hear from you in the, in the near future. Head over to Half-Assed History and uh, click through the contact form. It's the best way to get in touch. I read every single email I get, and I appreciate all of them, of course. And um, I want to thank once again the Portuguese contingent, the people who are listening. Hope you, hopefully you, you enjoyed a bit of Portuguese history. Uh, Enrico, Sarah, Mariana, Anna, Isabel, all, all the people who got in touch, thank you so very, very much. And I'm looking forward to more emails uh, in the coming weeks from people 
with uh, with topic suggestions. Keep an ear out for this week's um, uh, Quarter Us History and Monuments. That's coming up. And then, of course, another full-length episode in a week's time. Maybe I'll find another Hidden Cup competitor to cover. We'll see how, we'll see how the results of the tournament come in, uh, I, I guess. Uh, but, uh, no, look, thank you for being part of this episode. If you want to support the show, of course, you can uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash history. You gain access to ad-free listening, um, uncut episodes, all sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff, as well as ex- exclusive merch. But uh, the best way, as I say every single week, the best way to support the show is just by telling people. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. When you see me uh, pop up on the uh, on T90 streams in the future, be sure to type in the chat. Tell people about the podcast. Let them know they can go and uh, learn more about Vasco da Gama and uh, and King Stephen and uh, and Jan Zizka and... Uh, and Yadviga and Pasha Cutie and all these other identities that you're seeing duke it out at the moment. Anyway, that's enough of that. I want to thank you one final time for uh, for tuning into Half House History this week. I'll see you again next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you as ever with a, qu- a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from any Jewish actor, and it is, of course, about spices. The spices that uh, Da Gama and the rest of the Portuguese were so keen to get their hands on. <clears throat> Why does everyone waste their money by buying a whole bunch of different spices when... They could just buy all spice instead.